Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today, we feature Howard Hendricks, also known as The Prof. For over 50 years, he was a professor at the Dallas Theological Seminary. He mentored many Christian leaders, including Chuck Swindoll, Tony Evans, Joseph Stowell, and David Jeremiah. Hendricks was a keynote speaker for Promise Keepers, authored 16 books, and ministered in over 80 countries. Today's message is from Hebrews chapter 11. Faith, we are discovering firsthand, is a many-faceted thing. But no matter what its expression, it is always active, never passive. It is always dynamic, never static. And nowhere is this more clearly demonstrated than in Hebrews chapter 11. Here the Holy Spirit provides convincing proof that faith works in the arena of life. Faith functions where the rubber meets the road. Faith operates in the realities of human experience. And if someone were to ask the question, does faith work? The answer unhesitatingly derived from this passage is, yes, it does. For any age, under any circumstances, Encountering any hassles in any society, faith works. And a man or a woman can distinguish himself in this generation as in any other for his belief, his willingness to stretch himself out on the infinite God. Now tonight, we want to focus our attention upon the second major period which the Spirit of God selects to discuss. It begins in verse 8 and concludes in verse 22. It is the period of the patriarchs. These were the founders of the nation of Israel. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Tonight, we want to draw our attention upon Abraham, that unbelievable believer. Abraham punctures the pages of the New Testament more frequently than any other Old Testament character. And invariably, it is his faith which is underscored by the Spirit of God. He is known as the Father of the faithful. And in this passage, the Holy Spirit selects four episodes from his life. You can identify them readily because each one begins with the by faith formula. If you have a pencil or a pen, why don't you underline it in your text? In verse 8, by faith, Abraham. Verse 9, by faith, 
Abraham became a sojourner. Verse 11, by faith, even Sarah. And in verse 17, by faith, Abraham. Robert Louis Stevenson said it, the art of literature is the art of knowing what to omit. And whenever you study the scriptures, not only study that which the Spirit of God selects, but study what he selects in relationship to what he omits, then his selection is highlighted. It's quite obvious that there is much more material about the life of Abraham than that which is discussed in Hebrews 11. The question is, why does the Spirit of God select these four episodes from the life of this man? And tonight, we want to discover why. In verse 8, it is the adventure of faith, as seen in his incredible departure from earth. In verse 9, it is the patience of faith, as seen in his daring sojourn in the land for over a hundred years. In verse 11, it is the certainty of faith as seen in the miracle birth of Isaac. And in verse 17, it is the test of faith as seen in the supreme sacrifice of Isaac. Now, let's look at these in detail. First of all, verse 8, the adventure of faith. It's seen in his incredible departure from earth. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed to go out unto a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where to go. Remarkable. Fantastic. And somebody says, man, let's give him a hand. Because when you mention Ur to the average individual, they think of a town like Chigger Creek, Texas. <laughs> Population 27. They visualize a sign on the outskirts of Ur. On one side of the sign it says, you are entering. And on the other side, you are leaving. But archaeology has thrown a great deal of light upon the city of Ur. It has been excavated. Ur had extensive libraries packed with the most significant volumes available in the ancient world. Ur had split-level, air-conditioned homes. Ur had the finest schools of its time, where they taught square root and logarithm. In other words, when God called Abraham to leave Ur, he called him to leave the center of civilization. He called him to leave the scene, to leave the bulk of his family, his home, his friends, his business, his religion everything that a man regards as the components of security. And mark it well, 
in this verse. Faith is always linked with obedience. Twice it's emphasized. He went out. He went out. No strings attached. It was a leap into the dark only to discover that it was on to rock. Faith is a process of trusting a person even when you cannot trace the path. It means commitment before understanding. And this throws a great deal of light upon a very thorny subject to many people, namely, the problem of determining the will of God. As a young man wrestling with this problem myself, I came to the place where I was willing to commit my life to Jesus Christ without a string attached, except for one condition. Lord, I'll do anything you want and I'll go anywhere you want, except Africa. Now, my friends, to this day, I can't tell you why it was Africa. I've been there on several occasions, and in 1974, I planned to spend two months ministering there. I happen to believe this is the most exciting continent on the earth today in terms of what the Holy Spirit is doing. And you are going to hear from this continent. But at that point, in life, anywhere, Lord, but not Africa. And I thrashed around for almost nine months in my Christian experience with no peace, with no direction. And I can still remember the night as if it were yesterday when I said, Lord, anywhere, including Africa. And then it was God began to show me his will for my life. Let's suppose that tonight I were to tell you that I had a piece of paper which had the will of God for your life. You say, really? Yes, I do. Well, tell me about it. Well, I can tell you three very important things about it. It's good, it's acceptable, it's perfect. Don't allow the world to squeeze you into its mold, but be ye transformed by the overhauling of your mind that you may prove in experience the will of God, that it's good, that it's acceptable, that it's perfect. Now, unfortunately, the word good has been raped in the English language. If I sell you a car, you say, what's the condition? I say, it's good. So what's the matter with it? <laughs> because we're so inebriated with the excessive superlatives that unless I say it's fantastic, you think there's something wrong. This word good happens to be the same word used to describe God. It is as good as God is. And it's acceptable. Not only in prospect, 
but also in retrospect. In human experience, there are many things toward which we look and long with great fascination and expectation until it arrives. And often later, we look back with agony. There is no such thing as spending your life in the will of God and coming to the end of human experience and having any regrets. It's perfect. You couldn't subtract one thing from it or add one thing to it and in any way improve it. Say, so, well, that intrigues me. What's on the inside? And when I open the sheet up, you discover it's a blank sheet of paper. There's only a line at the bottom for you to sign. Oh, you say, but if I could just look over the will and examine the specifications, then I might buy it. You will never find the will of God under those terms. It is not until you sign your name on that line without a thing on that paper that the Spirit of God will ever reveal His will for your life. And He won't tell it to you all at one time. He leads in small steps because that is what makes you a dependent person. We're driving down a torturous mountain road it's so hairy, one slip to the right and we're off the cliff a thousand or two feet below. And you say, man, I hope we'll make it. I'm sure glad you have lights, but what are we going to do three miles down the road? I say, a wonderful news for you, my friend. When we get three miles down the road, my headlights will be there too. All I can see is a few hundred yards down the road, but that's all I need to see right now. And when I get down there, he'll reveal his will to me. The thing I love about this man, Abraham, is that without having any information whatever, not even a Texaco map, <laughs> he takes off. Because God said, go. Go out, but where? Destination unknown. You see, the Christian has no right to ask where. The only thing you have a right to ask is what. You'll remember that it was Saul of Tarsus who met the risen Christ on the Damascus road. And when he said, who art thou, Lord? He said, I'm Jesus, whom you are in the process of persecuting. And his first response in faith was, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Not where do you want me to go, but what do you want me to do? Now, it's a dangerous thing to pray that prayer unless you're committed to it. As a small boy, I remember hearing a well-known Bible teacher by the name of Dr. L. L. Legters, great Bible teacher of the last generation. Frankly, I don't remember anything he said, but I've never forgotten an illustration he used. He said that on one occasion as a pastor of a church, he was walking down the street and he had $50 in his pocket. Now, what a preacher would be doing with $50 in his pocket, I'll never know. 
And he met a missionary home on Furlough who said, you know, Dr. Lecters, I think it's providential that we met because we're having an urgent prayer meeting over at the church and we'd love to have you join us. He said, fine, I'll be glad to come. So he showed up for the prayer meeting and if you knew Dr. Legters, he was a somewhat blunt, brusque type of individual. So he said, look, let's not pray out of ignorance, let's pray out of intelligence. What is it that you need? Well, they said, Dr. Legters, we have an urgent financial need. We need $50. Fine, let's pray about that. <laughs> so they went around the circle once and when they got around, one of the missionaries said, you know, Dr. Legters, I don't think we've really laid hold of the Lord in faith about this. Let's pray again. Fine, let's go. Second time around. Third time around, God said to him, Legters, what about the $50 in your pocket? And he stopped the lady right in the middle of her prayer. He said, hold it, lady. <laughs> he said, God answered your prayer. He has, right. Reached in, got the $50, put it down on a table. And as a little kid sitting up near the front of the auditorium, I can still remember this long bony finger coming out as he said, ladies and gentlemen, it's a dangerous thing to pray. <laughs> Have you learned that? Because God will always take you at his word and it might cost you your life. You might become significant. <laughs> you know, I have often wondered if maybe this is the reason why so many Christians are suffering from a bad case of the blahs. You know, life is generally so boring and there's very little that's exciting. They really know nothing of the adventure of the Christian life because they've never recognized that they're simply a suit of clothes in God's ready-wear department. And every day you get up and say, Lord, I'm just your suit of clothes. Put me on to accomplish your work. They spend the bulk of their life, you know, agonizing, oh boy, we gotta live another day. And I got a witness for Jesus today. <laughs> and he spent a bulk of their time batting doors off the hinges. My friend, when the Spirit of God opens the door, you can put a 747 right through the middle of it. You'll have no problem, whatever. And I find the most exciting thing of my life is to wake up every day to say, Lord, I just want to be available. And then to experience the unadulterated adventure of seeing what God's going to do through his instrument. That's the miracle of the ministry, that he wants to use you. My friend, I am quite convinced he could have used far more efficient means than you and me. The miracle of it is that he handpicked us to be his personal representatives to this generation. You know, I am starting this month my 22nd year teaching at Dallas Theological Seminary. That's just long enough to get an education. And I've made a conclusion, and that is most of us on the faculty have set no track records for picking winners. We have students at the seminary with high IQs. We have students with very ordinary IQs. We have students who are resplendently gifted. We have other students. We're still looking for their gift. 
We have students who come on like gangbusters. We have students, you wonder if they know what the name of the game is. Have you ever wondered what goes through the mind of a professor before the hour begins? I'll tell you. I can still remember a student I had in my class. Before the bell would ring, I would say, Lord, what in the world are you going to do with him? <laughs> he slept through most of the classes. He might as well have slept through all of them. Finally, he was graduated. How? I'll never know. We not only preach grace at Dallas, we practice it. <laughs> Some of our students graduate magna cum laude, other students graduate laude, how come? <laughs> and this guy was in the last classification. He's the last man in his class to be placed. Finally, he took a church that 17 men in a row walked away from as hopeless. And when I heard he took it, I thought that's par for the course. He doesn't know enough not to take it. So he took this church in Canada, 126 years old, and at the end of 126 years, it was smaller than when it was first organized. Tremendous progress. <laughs> he moved into the church. More importantly, God moved into his life. And wherever I went across America, I began to hear about it. People coming to know Christ in a steady stream. People being built up in the word. Church was growing. I'd say, you got the right guy? This is his name, spell it. <laughs> Went to Dallas, that's him. Finally, one day he wrote to me, he said, hey, Prof, I understand you're coming up in our area. I wonder if you'd do me a favor. Would you preach for me? I'm going to be away for a Sunday. I'd love to have you preach. I'd love to have my people hear you. And I thought I'd love to come to see this thing in action. So I went, and what an experience. I came upon this scene, and mind you, a church 126 years old had a building program on the first in 126 years. The place was packed to the doors. They had two services. In fact, it was so crowded that when I finally got up to preach, I had to give my seat to a man so he could sit down. <laughs> After I got through preaching, one of the deacons came up and said, well, that's pretty good preaching, son. He said, by the way, have you ever heard our preacher preach? <laughs> you know, I came back to the seminary with a new lease on life. <laughs> and I could take the rest of the evening and then some telling you about the exciting adventure of seeing God move in the life of a person who dares to make himself available. And when God says, go, all systems are go, he takes off. But look at verse 9, because there's another component to biblical faith. Here I find the patience of faith, as seen in Abraham's daring sojourn. By faith, he became a sojourner in the land of promise, as in a land not his own, dwelling in tents, not at the royal coach inn, with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. 
Men and women, face it. Abraham never owned an acre of land in the land that God had promised to him. In fact, when he wanted to get a small plot in order to bury his wife, he had a major hassle. And when he finally died, the only thing he had was that little plot of ground in which he buried Sarah. See, that's faith. To live for a hundred years clinging to a promise without fulfillment. Now, when we studied the life of Noah, we saw some very interesting things. For instance, Noah knew precisely what God wanted him to do. He knew precisely how God wanted him to do it. And he knew why God wanted him to do it. And he knew exactly what was going to be the outcome. But when you come to Abraham, he had a promise that he never experienced in terms of fulfillment. But he believed God. Not simply the promise of God, but more importantly, the person who made the promise. And he was willing to die clinging to that promise, knowing that the person who made it would never fail. I think I heard not too long ago one of the most remarkable testimonies I have ever heard in my life. It was a high watermark of spiritual maturity to me. It was on a recent Billy Graham television program. It was a testimony given by a woman whose husband was missing in action in Vietnam. And she said, I finally came to grips with the fact that there were three options confronting me, all of which potentially represent the will of God. There is the possibility my husband may knock on the door someday and walk in alive. That's not difficult to believe God for. But she said, maybe that's not his will. So someday I might finally get confirmation He's dead. And she said, even that would be good news. Because I know that he died in Jesus Christ. And I know where he is now. In the presence of the Lord. And to depart and be with Christ is far better. But she said, I also had to come to grips with the fact that it's possible that in the will of God I may go to my grave never knowing whether he's dead or alive. And I am willing to stretch myself out on that option because of the person whom I have come to know. Once again, our Father, we thank thee for the privilege of exposing our minds and our hearts to divine truth. 
And we realize that to him that hath been given much, of him shall much be required. And Lord, you have exposed us to a lot of light. And this has created great responsibility and great privilege as we dare to trust you for what you have promised, knowing that what you have promised, you are able also to perform. We pray that in these days, as we come to the end of this conference, you will be doing your miracle work in the life of each one of us, that the greater glory might come to you. We ask it through Jesus Christ, our risen Lord, Amen. You've been listening to Howard Hendricks. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.